0: You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hieri and Darren Venter, founders of the Investors Agency and Deba. With over 20 years' experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds if not thousands of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property.
1: guys and welcome to the latest episode of the lazy equity podcast and today i'm super excited to have my business partner on the show darren thanks for joining us mate
0: thanks bob thanks for having me again mate thank you very much today we are going to be chatting about how to buy property from your atz yeah um now obviously there's a lot of uh, inquiries that we get and we speak to a lot of um the people that come through the business and we, we teach them and we educate them about that process but there's obviously a lot of people that don't know that process and today we're just going to go into the atz's about how to do that properly. And we're gonna use the three top markets that we're currently buying in as examples.
1: Yeah, so in terms of the three top markets for those guys listening in terms of the states, that's, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, states, so, markets. So, and we know there's thousands of markets within each, or hundreds of markets within each, in each state, but we're gonna cover western australia south australia and queensland in this podcast yeah for those of you that want to learn the specific order and specific legalities in regards to how to go through that buying process we've done an episode with the the viola and crystal from Selfie Co. So please listen to that uh, episode uh, and if there's any more detail that you want to get into in regards to finance or other aspects, there was an episode with Jai as well so you guys can can go back and um, just type in the search bar Jai or Viola or, or Sphinx, Sphinx to Co. and you'll be able to find those, uh, those episodes.
0: Great. So step number one, um, as we all go into the purchase of a property, the first things that we need to establish is what our finance looks like because that's going to allow us to understand essentially what we need to buy yeah. and what where that product is essentially gonna be located. Yep. Now, when we look at our finances, uh, the biggest problem that a lot of investors get hit on or where they literally stop their progression is that they get a lending limit and they take that lending limit and they go and buy a property. Yeah, that max
1: max limit, right?
0: Could be the max limit or it could also be a, a bad amount of, or a low amount rather of uh, rental income that's being produced from that property. Yeah but they may be overlooking this. Now, it's really important to understand that your rental income from that property is going to impact what your servicing looks like for the following property. Correct. So while you may be able to get a lending limit today for your first property, your second property will be affected by whatever you purchase today. Yeah. Um, So when we look for a property, uh, the high income earners will generally be able to accept a lower yielding property. Yeah. And the lower income earners will need to aim for a higher income earning property. Now, the differences here is that those different options will put you into different markets. So it is really important to understand that.
1: Yeah, and then also the other thing to consider is the reason why that's so important is, as we know, the top tier lenders will lend you up to a seven times max your household income in debt. And then your third, second and third tier lenders will lend you up to a 10 times maximum household income in debt mi- minus your liabilities. So the more rental income you can get on property number one, if you're a low income earner, that's what's going to help you increase that household income. There are a lot of third tier lenders or second tier lenders that will look at the full rental income as opposed to capping it at 6% at like some of the top tier lenders do. So it is quite important to, to look at that.
0: Yeah, and that basically uh, is going to... Put you in the position, like like we're mentioning here, to, to be able to grow that portfolio effectively. And the, the right person to help you here is a really good mortgage broker and somebody who understands what mortgage lending looks like beyond purchases. And the way to best gauge that is to put into a scenario, if I buy this property, what will that mean for the following property based on today's financial circumstances? So a, a good financial broker or a good mortgage broker rather will be able to guide you on how to do that. So tip number one would be to get your mortgage broker on the side with you, interview your mortgage brokers, find out if they are able to do a forecast projection of a, uh, of a simulation of a purchase. Yep. So get understanding of what the next purchase needs to look like or rather get an understanding of what this first purchase needs to look like to be able to support the next purchase.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that's really important for, for the buyers that they should be looking at before they go and actually buy that property is having a think of what the end goal looks like because that end goal is going to tell them whether they just need to try buy two properties or whether they just need to try buy three properties or if one property is enough for them. Yeah. So there's so many different variables and it's it's, it's really important to, to think about that. And I guess another example that I want to use is, is we get quite a few clients who potentially have a lot of income on their principal place of or a lot of equity on their principal place of residence they don't necessarily like if you're in sydney and you've got a million dollars on your principal place of residence or two million dollars on your principal place of residence but you're in a poor cash flow position because you're paying off that loan and it's such a big loan you don't necessarily want to or need to go and buy another strong growth property that's going to cost you more money to hold on to yeah potentially you want a balanced property or just a cash flow property which can help offset some of those repayments yeah so what you want to be mindful of is not just buying in the hottest market at that time having an understanding as to what your goals are what your current situation is like and what type of assets going to best suit that situation
0: exactly and those assets are going to be situated in markets which takes us into point number two Selecting your market. Now, in point number one, we did speak about how a a higher income earner will be able to uh, target lower yielding properties, um, and a lower income earner would require higher yielding properties. Correct. Now, why that is important is because sometimes when growth expectations are inside markets, those markets could potentially have lower yields. But if we know that there's a higher growth expectation inside them, and our buyer or a buyer would be able to afford the loss of those yields then it would be more beneficial for that buyer to go and buy in higher equity markets because at the end of the day equity is what creates the wealth it's not necessarily the cash flow correct the cash flow will retire you when it comes down to releasing those assets or reducing your
1: debts correct exactly that's right so in terms of selecting those markets there are a few fundamentals that you that you always want to look into and and you know some of those long-term fundamentals are things like population growth you want to look at infrastructure projects going on within an area you want to look at how diverse that economy is like you don't want to be buying in we're seeing now post-covid holiday destinations and tourism destinations that were single industry driven are struggling quite a bit so you want to make sure they have sustainable, uh, long-term economic drivers for the future.
0: Yeah, and a really good website and a resource to find some economic drivers within areas. Uh, one of them is Urban Developer. It's a publicly available website where you can just type in the area and it'll give you really good understanding of what sort of projects are going on inside those areas. But in terms of the actual live data, head over to realestate.com.au or domain.com.au. Those are the websites that will give you uh, up-to-date information or at least within the last month of what's happened within those markets and uh, how much traction is in those markets a really good indicator here um, and now we know that not every market is dependent on uh, actual auction clearances yeah. however the higher the auction clearance rate within a market we can safely assume that there's going to be more demand within those markets That's right, yeah. now there are also a lot of other factors inside those two platforms which tell us about the expected mm-hmm. valuations of a market and where those valuations have come from in a historical six months or 12 months before that. So that'll give us a really good understanding of the trending pricing and the trending growth of cash flow um, for those markets. So educate yourself around those markets. Uh, Make sure you can buy safely in those markets. And I say safely because that's going to come into the cash flow produced from that property as well inside that market
1: yeah yeah that's right and so and then after that i guess when someone selected the right market for them or for themselves and they know what market's best suited to their personal circumstances you want to make sure you're selecting the right asset within that market we know that there is such a big difference between how a three-bedroom house will perform in a specific market in comparison to a four-bedroom house or we know that um you know, units will drastically drive the median of of, of an area down, but then um, doesn't mean that the houses haven't performed extremely well during that time. So it's really good, really important to get an understanding of the specific asset type within that market that's in most demand.
0: Absolutely. And that comes in when you're looking at a market's median, because a median is a representation of all asset types yeah. within a market. So that's accounting for two bedrooms, three bedrooms, four bedrooms, and five plus bedrooms. Yeah. Now, that obviously takes into account, like you said, apartments, units, as well as houses. Yep. And that is a median. Now, if a median is growing at, let's say, 10% per, per, uh, per annum, yep. it's a good result. But more than likely, you're going to find some of those formats are producing maybe 6% or 4%, yep. which means the latter of that is the higher producing, mark, or the higher producing asset. Correct. And that could be the three bedrooms and four bedrooms, and typically are. Yeah. So have a look at what's more in demand around the three and the four bedroom houses, because that's going to de- uh, generally drive more demand. And those will be the higher equity producing properties.
1: And where, where can the listeners find where what's what's most in demand in terms of the format type? Is that available on realestateanddomain.com?
0: Yep. So in realestate.com.au, there is an actual suburb profiler, yeah. and it gives you a really good breakdown in terms of the actual cash flow, so the rental return from a property. Yeah as well as the uh, the growth from those those formats as well right and that gives a historical trend uh, inside them too okay so step three is basically getting into these actual properties and and having a look at them now a really good way to do that is to find a a good partner on the ground because a lot of the time when you do find a property in these areas these properties could be in markets or suburbs across the country Uh, you may be you know you may live in sydney and we may they may be shopping in wa yeah so, getting a good partner to have a look at that property for you is going to really help you get into a, a good state of confidence yep. about that property. Because, as we know, there's different pockets within markets as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. And a good partner would be our uh, property managers. We feel that it can be very valuable here. The reason why property managers would be really valuable, for, so you wouldn't ever, I shouldn't say ever, but you ideally don't want to have a, a real estate agent doing the walkthrough <laughs> for you because they have a vested interest to sell the property at the highest price and. I wouldn't be surprised if they are, if they don't, if they accidentally miss certain things within the property that they don't want to show. It's it's not it's not uncommon like for yeah. that to happen. You can't expect it's just it's just risky to rely on an agent to show you all the aspects of the property. But in regards to a property manager, if they're the ones that you're going to use later for the property management, whether you choose to do that, whether you just pay them for their service, uh, they're going to be a lot more independent. And if they're the ones that are going to be doing the uh, property management for you, then they're going to make sure that the property is in the right condition to find a tenant down the track. That's right. They can also tell you things like whether you're you're best off um, putting an air con in the master bedroom, or changing the carpet and putting in floorboards and how much extra you'd get for rent for anything like that. So a really good property manager is worth their weight in gold and you should be able to trust them to uh, to do a very good walkthrough.
0: Yeah, and they'll even be as good as to let you know if that area where that property is located is potentially not a good area to buy in because there might be a surplus of council housing or government-funded housing uh, commissions where that may be a less desirable area to, to purchase in. And we know how different uh, areas of markets perform in different ways according to these stats. Yeah. Now, when you do look for a property manager, obviously there are going to be a lot of people who don't want to help you out and that's fine. That's the way to vet out who will work with you and who will not work with you. Somebody who has their interest of actually being able to take a new property and add it to their rent roll and use you as a client will also be the right person to be able to have a look at that property for you and be in good communication uh, with you because that's the, the type of person that's going to go above and beyond to, to manage that property is to help you out by initially inspecting it as well.
1: Yeah, and one of the things you want to be mindful of is I'm not going to put a blanket over all of the larger agencies, but it is something to be careful of. If you are going to a larger agency, if they're sending their junior, their newest staff member or their youngest staff member, they might not have the same skills as as a smaller property management agency where you're dealing with the owner directly or if there's a senior buyer's agent that you can deal with. So you just want to be mindful who they're sending. You also want to be able to give them some clear instruction as to what to look out for and, and, and what potential hurdles there can be. And those types of things to look out for
0: are, are pretty much in line with wear and tear, but also negligence of the property because you obviously are buying an asset and that asset is most of the time uh, inhabited by people at this stage. That could be inhabited by a homeowner or could be by other tenants. Yeah. Generally speaking, we find that homeowners obviously look after their properties a lot better than tenants do. Correct. Keep in mind that the tenants that are inside that property – or on a, a lease and that lease does have a condition report attached to it. So there is a degree of responsibility that those tenants would have to keep that property within a good order. Yeah. But we also don't necessarily, you, you may not also know at this point what uh, the lease conditions are or what the entry conditions were from the time of entry of those tenants. Yeah. So to get your property manager to help you when they're inspecting those properties, the kinds of things that they can look for
1: would be? Would be things like looking inside the cupboards, looking under the sinks. Uh, it's difficult to move furniture around. You can't really expect them to do that. But if they are, you know, if they do look under the beds, uh, if they do look inside the cupboards, like you know, these are the sort of stuffs that are stuff that is super important.
0: Yeah, uh, also having a look at the cornices on the uh, the walls to the roof joinery to see if there's any movement on the property that will give you an indication of what type of foundation has been laid or how good or bad the build quality of that property is. Yeah. Uh, if there's any overflowing of the gutters, which have uh, cause any damage to the eaves of the property yeah. and if that water damage is actually flowing inside the house at all yeah. whether there's water damage in sh- inside the showers or behind the walls yeah. or in the plumbing of the bathroom because these are very moist areas yeah. and they do capture a lot of um, uh, Water damage as well.
1: One thing about that is if there is water damage in the bathroom often there, there may be a wardrobe adjacent on the adje- on the common wall um, behind that bathroom or behind that shower if that property manager can look inside that wardrobe, they'll see if there has been a, a leak or waterproofing has failed because it will come through. Sometimes even the carpet in the um in the wardrobe will be wet if they look underneath it or it previously was wet. So the building and pest report will explain to you if the moisture is current or if it was existing. But the property manager can do some visual checks um, prior to that prior to actually going and purchasing that property.
0: Yeah. Now once you have a good, confident understanding of the type of the property and what that property looks like and the aesthetics of that property, you'd wanna do an on the ground check. And that comes into the involvement of looking if there's any easements on the property or if that property is in a flood zone or a fire zone. Easements on a property is going to give you some restrictions to what you could potentially do down the track. It also gives you a good visibility of who has access to your property. Now, the definition of an easement is essentially a passage of right to access something of your property. Now, in a uh, in a government format of an easement, we generally see that there's plumbing and sewer, li- sewer lines on a property. Yep. If those sewer lines are boundary-bearing, so along the fences and along the external uh, perimeters of the property, you're generally going to be safe because this is not going to affect anything that you have to build on top of. Sure. When you start to see these types of uh, easements going through the actual property and underneath the dwelling, you can be almost certain that... Uh, there's going to be, if if there's a diligent insurance company that's putting a claim on the property, they will potentially mark that property's insurance price up because of the risk of having that on the property.
1: And that's the same with fire and flood zone as well. So you can go and buy in a flood zone if you chose to or in a fire zone if you chose to. But you need to be aware that your insurance costs will be far more expensive for that exact same property property may be a kilometer away that's not in one of those areas you might be having uh, insurance costs that are half the price yep
0: so where can you get this information obviously there is a selling agent involved with this and the selling agent is uh, expected to be able to provide this information so you can absolutely ask the selling agent for this information they will make it available to you if they don't make it available to you the next best call is to call the actual council that the property is in Let them know that the property is for sale and give them the address and find out uh, the necessary bits and pieces that you really want to know.
1: And there are also some council websites where people people can get this information from. Uh, if they are finding it hard to find this information, then they obviously can go to their lawyers or solicitors who can do these searches for them.
0: Yep. Now, in this process of validating the property, we need to understand what the actual rental return of that property is going to be able to produce yeah. so that we know if it's the right property to be able to purchase it. The same inspector that you would have engaged or that property manager to help you get into that property is the person that's going to be able to create a rental appraisal for you. Yep. Now, a very quick way of understanding what a property rents for on a gross yield is going to be if you take that rental price, you multiply it by 52, yep. you divide it by the property's purchase price, yep. and then you multiply it by 100. Correct. Correct. That'll give you a percentage, and in the case of a $500,000 property renting out at $500 $500 a week in rent, that'll create a 5.2% yield. Generally speaking, that's going to satisfy a lot of banks, but if it doesn't satisfy you, it's not going to be the property that helps you get to the next one, so you need to be diligent about what that rental yield of that property is going to be able to produce so that you know it's the right property for you to purchase for your purchasing plan for the next purchase.
1: Yeah, and and so you can get that rental appraisal from the property manager, which is extremely important, but I would say if you don't have a relationship with that property manager, then it's wise to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, what you probably want to do as well is do a little bit of your own due diligence, and um, and you can go on to you can go on and see what's available for rent, same format in that same suburb, and, and you know you can give yourself a bit of a range as to what what they are looking for. Like so, so you just want to be mindful if you haven't worked with this property manager before, um, just just they're generally going to be accurate because they're the ones that have to find the tenants, but just take it with a grain of grain of salt in that regards. Just when you are looking at comparables and you are looking at your own, trying to work out what you might be able to get for rent. Um, try get your emotion out of it because we do find sometimes people think that their properties might be superior to other properties because they own it and they get emotional about it but try get your emotion out of it and just um, look at look at the properties for what they are. Yep totally.
0: All right so the next stage is step number four which is your negotiations. Now this is assuming that you're happy with everything that you find in the property. Yep. You've determined the value of the rental return as well as what the value of that property should be to purchase. Yep and you're now going into your negotiations of that property
1: i think probably the number one rule for for negotiating would be ignore the guide we saw in adelaide at some stage properties were selling 15 20 over the guide at the same time we were seeing properties in perth selling five percent under the guide uh, now we've seen properties in adelaide sell five percent over the guide it changes all the time same thing's happening in, in queensland same thing's happening in Sydney. So what you want to look out for is comparable sales. That's what's going to tell you um, what your property should sell for. And you want to look at those comparables uh, on a relatively short time frame, so over the last month or so. Yep. So what you want to look out for when negotiating would be comparable sales. I think comparable sales is extremely important. Uh, The type of things you want to look out for is the age of the property, is the land size of the property, is the format of the property, the internal square meterage of the property. These are all the sort of things that you, that you want to look out for when, when trying to negotiate on a property. And also in regards to even specific suburbs, you want to get familiar whether there are specific pockets in specific mm-hmm. suburbs that are superior and specific pockets in specific suburbs that aren't as superior. And this is going to all impact the, the property price.
0: Yeah. Now, when you are doing that negotiation for, for the purchase, keep in mind that... Generally, within a suburb, there's around 30% of those properties which are being inhabited by investors or rather tenants, yep. and the rest of them that market is sitting 70% being homeowners. Yep. That means that uh, there's a, a good chance that you will be buying a property that has investors in it or has homeowners yeah. in it. Generally speaking, you'll find that when you're going up uh, to negotiate into a property that has homeowners, you're going to get a lot more traction inside that property. Yeah. Not just because that property would have have thought to have been taken care of better but also because there's no lease in play on that property which means that you're not tied into anything that potentially could be locked in from a lease agreement of that purchase so in that case you will be able to buy that property and rent it out at the market rate when you have a property which is on a lease and it's tenanted currently you'll find there will be less buyers involved This is a really good way to understand your negotiation temperature of that property. The longer the lease is in play and the more undervalued that property is on the lease for rent, then the stronger your negotiations can be to pull that price down because essentially less people will be attracted to that type of property.
1: That's a massive one. That's probably the most important thing that we see in when negotiating in regards to what will have an impact on the property price. So if a market is uh, 70% owner occupiers, but you know, there's a tenant in place, you're competing with 70% less people that tenants in there for a long time. So there's 70% less demand. And then if the tenants are in place for a long period of time, or for a low amount, you're going to also get rid of some investors competing with you because they might not have the appetite for holding onto an investment property that might cost them an extra $50 a week to hold onto for the next six months. But if you're buying that, at times you know you can buy that 10% under, under what the price would normally sell for. So you might be saving yourself $50,000, but losing $2,000 in rent over that time. So that's a really, really big one. Yeah, so another really
0: good tool that you can use in the negotiation is making sure that your pre-approval is in place. Yeah. If you are showing these sellers that you have your banking and your finances already in place and already uh, up to date and ready to go, you are going to be ahead of the competition that potentially would not have that. If you're able to increase your deposit size as well uh, on the property, on the purchase, the initial deposit, which I'm going to touch on in a sec, that will also make it a little bit more favourable to to the seller. Now, there are two deposits on the property. There's the initial contract deposit, which is a fee which can range anywhere from $1,000 in a lot of the Queensland markets up to ten dollars or $15,000, $20,000 yep. in uh, other markets around Australia. Yep. The, that deposit is basically to take that market offline, off listings, yep. uh, and, and have your name on that contract and exchange that contract. Yep. Once that is exchanged, then the initial deposit from the bank uh, or the initial deposit from your savings account is, is transferred over. Uh, and that's the balance of whatever is due from the contract that you're negotiating on.
1: Yeah, and there are a few other things that buyers can do, and this is by no means something that we recommend, but it is something that a buyer can choose to do if they wanted to. Obviously, seek legal advice and have a think about your own personal circumstances and risk profile. But as a buyer, you can remove your finance clause when negotiating to put you in a stronger position. The risk with that is if the contract... If the valuation comes back short or if for some reason you can't get your finance you will lose that initial deposit so you obviously want to be aware of that but it is a tool in your toolkit if you choose to go down that path there is another tool which you can choose, which again, it's not something that we recommend at all, but it's a toolkit in your tool. It's, it's a tool in your toolkit if you chose to, you can remove a building and pest clause as well. So obviously if a vendor has three offers and two of them are subject to finance and building and pest and one is unconditional, they'll go with the one that's unconditional even if it's a lower price. The risk to you is you can't pull out or you're going to lose that, that, that larger deposit. So um, that's something that you wanna weigh up and obviously seek legal, legal advice there. From there, I guess the the last thing that you want to be mindful of is or be aware of is the questions that you can ask the agent. So there are some questions that you want to ask the agent and you obviously want to take all their answers with a grain of salt. So some of these questions can be, how many other offers do you have on the table? Again, take their answer with a grain of salt. What are the conditions on those offers And, and see what they say. Often they won't tell you what the other offers are, but sometimes you can ask the same question in a different manner. So you can, for example, you might say, what are the other offers on the table? And he might say, the agent or he or she might say, look, we're not going to disclose that. And then you could say, I'm thinking about putting in an offer at 480, do you think that would put me in a good position? And he might say, no, don't bother, there's higher offers. Or they might say that, you know, that's put you in a good position. So you get a bit of a a gauge there. Another question you can ask the agent is, uh, when are you presenting the offers to the vendor? So what you want to avoid is putting in an offer on Wednesday, if the agent's not presenting the offers till Sunday, because you can almost be guaranteed that the agent will use your offer against you for every single person that goes through that open home or every single person that calls that agent. So you wanna generally try putting your offer at the very end, or if you know there's a certain price the vendor will accept, then go in early and try secure it before they get lots of other offers. So I guess that leads me into that other question is ask the agent, is there a specific price that the vendor wants? Or are you going to play out the campaign and present all the offers at one time? So these are, you know, these are the types of questions you want to get some clarity on, and that will p- give you some guidance as to where your offer should potentially be. Yeah,
0: and another negotiating tactic that you could use is to put a timestamp on the offer. So you could say to the agent that uh, this offer is subject to 24 hours. After the 24-hour period, I will be rescinding that offer price. Yeah. Um, and that may put a little bit of pressure on the actual decision-making as well. Yeah, that's right. So let's go into step number five, which is your legals. Once you've exchanged your contract, so uh, there's a lot to legalities, and depending on which state you're actually buying in, uh, it's very dependent on your format of that contract exchange and the legalities around how that get how that happens.
1: Yeah. So because it is so detailed and there's so much there for. for you guys to go through or for us to go through again refer back to episode 12 and 13 where we went through that with uh with the guys at sphinx delphic and ho and there is a ton of information there that will help you guys for state to state
0: yeah so at that stage of going into your actual legalities and uh, making sure that your contracts are in line uh you know in wa south australia and in queensland which are the three states we're talking about at the moment uh, all of those markets warrant the exchange of a contract and then a time period to go unconditional. Yep. Now, it's that period between the the exchanged contract and the unconditional, which we're going to be talking about in this section, yep. and that is to enable you to get your due diligence correctly done through your legal formats, and that's going to be, again, through your solicitors, but also to book in your building and pest inspection to make sure that that property is within line. Now, uh as Bobby mentioned, going into uh, some of the legal requirements in those different states, you can and you can't do certain types of negotiations from the reports of those building and pest inspections. Again, go back into those two podcasts, episode number 12 and 13, to get some clarity there. But we're going to speak about the uh, actual building and pest inspection um, process at this stage. So getting your pest and building inspection done is pretty simple. You literally find a good, reliable building and pest inspector on the ground in those areas. Again, you can refer back to that property manager who would have uh, helped you to inspect that property because they would also know all the contract trades within those areas because they do need to do repairs on properties too.
1: Definitely recommend you guys get that contact from the property manager rather than the sales agent because sometimes you can find sales agents, again, they they might introduce the building and pest inspector that is the most, uh, I guess- Accepting. Yeah, accepting of of issues that might arise within the property. So you want to get that from a a property manager rather than the agent. Yep. Now that
0: report generally takes, depending on which market you're in, can take a couple of days or up to a week. Uh, The report will come back. We highly advise taking that report and actually having a very good deep dive into it and actually calling the inspector to understand what is going on inside that report because all reports are created slightly differently. But there are some important points to remember about a building and pest report, and that is that uh, there will be an area on those reports that indicates three different levels of report, yep. low, medium, or high. Uh, that could be a term that's used, or there could be significance, insignificant, and major. Yep. Um, now, those are all different types of conditions of the property, yep. and they'll explain the wear and tear or the durability or the condition of any parts of those properties. Yep. When it comes down to looking at um, movement on the property, this is something which does happen in a lot of properties, and a lot of people could just look at their own homes and actually see movement in their own homes as well. Yep living around it versus finding it on a report is very different because somebody's not pointing it out to you
1: yeah and generally they're pointing it out as a major issue but that's why it's important to speak to major or significant that's why it's important to speak to the building and pest inspector to get some clarity as to what major or significant means a lot of the time a major or significant item might just be something that uh, it doesn't mean the house is going to fall down. It doesn't mean that the, the structure is um, is compromised. It might just mean that it is something that needs maintenance in the near future, whether that be uh, ex- expansion joints um, added in or, or you know, whatever it might be. It can just be a simple maintenance item, but they do need to legally classify that as a minor or major.
0: And that's right. They do need to legally classify because they are working under code. Yeah. And under code requires the condition of a property to meet certain standards. And those standards that are met will be classified as minor, major, or insignificant, or severe, or whatever it may be in terms of the terminology that they're using. But uh, it has to meet the code requirement for those reports. So while the report may show that there is a major defect, there may not be the actual need to actually stress about it because they're just reporting to code. Now, when you do get that report back, you're still within your unconditional phase you will be able to take that report depending on which state you're based in and actually negotiate further on that report and potentially get a little bit more out of that property while you're reaching your unconditional phase so for example in queensland there's a little bit more lenience you can uh, request you know windows to be replaced doors to be replaced carpets to be laid um you can
1: request a discount off the property as well if you wanted to a discount off
0: the property but then on the the lateral of that when you're looking in wa there's a lot more severe regulations around it and those come in line with uh, anything that's potentially not a a a detriment to the structure of the property and if it's not listed on the actual contract then potentially you may not be able to negotiate any further than that contract itself
1: exactly so in wa it is quite contrary there's no black or white rule it is sort of contract to contract but yeah you will find if there's no structural issues or if there's no termite issues generally you can't pull out on a building and pest Uh, and again we go through this in quite a bit more detail um, in episode 12 and 13.
0: so step six is when we're going unconditional on the property now when you go unconditional on the property it's basically letting you know that you've accepted all clauses and accepted all conditions of that contract and the property that the contract holds yep and that you are willing to go towards settlement of the property. Now, it's within this phase that you are formalizing your finances in that contract exchange as you proceed towards your settlement. Now, depending on how you're buying, if it's in a trust or if it's in a private entity, those different finances could be quite a uh, a different structure. Again, go back to our previous podcasts to get a little bit more information of that
1: yeah and it's at this stage when you do go unconditional this is where you will risk losing your deposit if you pull out so it's at this stage you want to make sure that all those clauses are satisfied because you don't want to be pulling out after after this stage and generally between unconditional and settlement there is it varies quite a bit but there's generally a two week gap two to three week gap where Uh, that's where you're getting your mortgage documents aligned and that's where you want to be speaking to your mortgage broker, making sure your lawyers are aligned with your mortgage broker, making sure that all the documents are signed and making sure that you're not overseas during this time because if you do need to wet sign those mortgage documents, which in the current climate, most mortgage documents have to be wet signed, this can put the deal at risk, which means you're going to lose your deposit if it can't be done.
0: Yep. So in the unconditional phase, there are three major sections of it. There is going unconditional on your finance, going unconditional on your building and pest inspection if you have put that on the initial contract. And then there's any special conditions that you might have on the contract as well. So once you've accepted all of those, you're literally uh, proceeding forward and you're going towards the unconditional phase. And it's like Bobby said, in the section that you need to make sure that you're available, your finances are available, and that everything is in line to proceed towards that settlement phase. Now, in that section, you're also going to want to engage back with your property manager, make sure that they are able to uh, help you out with the pre-settlement inspection of that property. Yep. You would also like to then try to contact your depreciation experts um, and get them into the property to have a look at the property so that they can tax, write up your uh, your claimable, depreciatable uh, components of that property as well as the property itself if it is new enough to do so. Yep. Um, And that'll help you get uh, a certain amount of money back every year off your tax claim. To get more information about the tax depreciation uh, process, listen to our episode number five. That'll give you a good understanding of how uh, the, the team at MCGQS are able to help with claiming your tax depreciation on that property.
1: And then from there on the day of settlement, uh, generally the, the lawyers and the brokers will be managing everything. Hopefully you've got good lawyers and, and, and brokers on, on your team. They'll um, they'll make sure that prior to that, you want to make sure that the right amount of funds are sitting in your account because the bank will automatically pull those funds out of your account on settlement day. The lawyer should be telling you how much needs to be in which account and, uh, and, and Pretty much from there, you'll see the money taken out of your account and a new loan created. Generally, the next day, and that's uh, that's pretty much what happens on settlement day. So there's not really much for you to actually do on that day.
0: No, there isn't. But after that, there's uh, a need to obviously tenant that property if it's not tenanted at the stage. Yep. So it would be very good to get your property manager in line and get that campaign ready to go live as soon as possible. Yep. Um, and again, you want to get those tenants in safely. Now, there's a screening process that does go through uh, interviewing all the tenants, and we do see that there might be a potential you know, 10, 15 people on the, the inquiry list. Yeah. Um, but the actual due diligence that needs to be done behind those uh, inquiries is quite thorough yeah. and there's a big need for financial understanding from those tenants yeah. compared to the rental repayments of that property, yeah. which needs to be uh, very fair. Now, um, your property manager will be able to help you get all that done. So after settlement, your property would be listed. And this would take us into step seven, which is getting that property on the portals and tenanted uh, safely and quickly with your property manager. Uh, That process, uh, by that stage, your property manager would have also onboarded you as their clients and given you uh, access to their portals. Uh, Generally, a lot of the uh, rental and management agencies have an internal portal for uh, projects which need to be conducted and yep. payments which need to be received and put forward.
1: Yeah. So, what you want to be mindful of as well when your property manager presents you with a few different applicants is um, don't get fooled by going by the most going for the applicant that has provided the most amount of money or offered the most amount of money. We often and your good property manager will tell you not to potentially go with them because poten- potentially their history is not as good. So, you want to make sure that their history is more important than. Uh, the price that they're paying. You don't want someone who is paying the highest an extra 20 or $30 but can't actually afford to pay that. It's going to give you a lot more headaches down the track.
0: Yep. And number eight, we're going to create a listing reminder for ourselves. Now, we're going to put our property back into realestate.com.au. There's a section there where you can actually upload your property once you've signed in and created an account. And that's going to give you an expectation or an understanding of how much equity you've gained inside that property because every month, real estate actually pings you and lets you know what the value of your property is. This is going to allow you to basically go back into the process, pull equity out, and re-engage your broker with step number one again.
1: Yeah, and that's why it's so important with property. It's the power of leverage, right? Leverage, right? you want to make sure that at least once every 12 months you've got your finger on the pulse you know how much equity you have in that property so you can then go and buy your second or your third one from there
0: yep that's right guys thanks very much for your time today that's basically the a to z about how to buy property within the three states south australia wa and Queensland, uh, obviously there's a lot of legalities and a lot of finances that we missed out on. But like we said, head back to those podcasts, have a listen to those and get informed and educated around that. Until next time. Thanks a lot, guys. guys. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group, or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.